So if you want to hear more of our podcast, please click on jamesandsana.com and you can hear our previous episodes. And please subscribe because James has some good word of wisdoms every morning to share with you guys through that email that comes into your inbox. Can you increase the volume on your microphone? I can hear you properly. I'm speaking into my cell phone, honey, so... Oh, okay, fine. Eh. Eh. (laughs) I mean, we can do a Zoom call if that would be helpful. No, it's fine. I don't have to really hear you. Yeah, you never listen to me anyway. What did you say? Exactly. So I've got my coffee, I've got my morning voice. Welcome to our loyal loyal listeners. Sadly, you will leave this episode... What are you laughing at? (laughs) You want to say our loyal customers or listeners, you said our royal... (laughs) They are our customers. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> they don't realize that we are subliminally, subliminally, subliminally. Honey, I think we should <laughs> change, change the topic for today's podcast. What should we change it to, honey? Um, that you being a very good communicator. I'm a great communicator. I'm just, sometimes I struggle with articulation. So don't tell me that I don't listen to you. It's difficult for me to understand what you're saying. Yeah, I I know that you listen to me when you point out all of my mistakes and my errors. You never miss an opportunity to point out when I've made a mistake. Yeah, see how smart I am? You definitely do listen to me. Yeah, so see how smart I am? Smart, attentive, attention to detail. Right, like I'm 12,000 miles (laughs) away from you and my intuition says something and I call you and it's there. I catch you red-handed sana's attention to detail is unlike no one else she catches every mistake that i make wow that is no small achievement to our royal slash loyal customers i mean listeners who have pressed play on this episode in hopes of finding content that is going to change their lives for the better i apologize in advance well, good morning, honey. <laughs> good morning, sweetheart. How are you doing? How are you? I should say good evening to you. It's morning here. It's evening there. Indeed. It's a good evening. After three days, sky is opening up. Smog, smudge, mm-hmm. smoke, fog, whatever you want to call it, they vanished. Mm-hmm. And right. I can go out on a balcony and actually hold, grasp some fresh air into my lungs. Yes, you showed me the. Uh, you, you showed me what it looked like out there, and it was extremely foggy. Yeah. And it just gets like that sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah. Because I guess Hanoi is in a valley. Mm-hmm. Is that what it is? Yeah, it's in the okay. valley. So it's time for the farms to be ready for new crops, and they burn the leftovers, and all the haze and smoke and everything is just sit on top of Hanoi. So we just have to wait for this wind to come and blow it all off afternoon was quite windy so maybe that's why it's clear now yeah every now and then it clears up enough so that you can see the mountains in the background Mm -hmm. and they are they are magnificent but you really 
it's it's very rare that you're able to see the mountains, even though they're not that far away. Oh, you just said mountain, and I remember Jed told me today that his sister and family con- coming to Vietnam, and they decided for that seven day quarantine they would just come straight to Fukuok Island, south of uh, Vietnam, and it's just a very small island, and they're going to mm-hmm. quarantine in one of the resort on the beach. So basically, they're not quarantined, and they're going to have seven days of fun there, and then they will come to Hanoi. They don't need to quarantine here. That's a good way to do it. Yeah. The pictures were so nice. It's like their little house. It's like a cottage or something on the beach. It's just right on the beach. You don't, And nobody's there. You don't really quarantine. You just go and swim, do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to do it. That's better than staying at the Wyndham Garden maximum security facility like I did in January. Honey, you should say thank you. I did it by myself. I found the best one. I could have put you in that Vietnamese one, and every meal they would have given you two spoons of porridge. You know what? I, I would rather do that and have it be more honest. Sure, I'll make sure next time your wishes will come true. Honestly, I would rather do that instead of paying like premium dollar for a, a high-quality hotel only to be treated like a prisoner because I step out of the room so I can get a little exercise in the hallway. What makes you it's think ridiculous. that in a Vietnamese hotel you're not going to be treated as prisoner? They don't speak English. They're going to just lock you inside your room. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to treat me like a prisoner, just send me to a prison while I do this mandatory quarantine. I will make sure you will be in prison next time. I think that's the way to go. Sure. So again... My apologies to our listeners who are expecting high-quality content. It is not to be found in this episode. Well, honey, today we are going to talk about something very exciting because what we are going to talk about, I didn't really pay much attention to it until I really get to know you. I would hear about it, but I didn't know in detail what it means and what impact it has on that person's life or what happens to that person after they are actually involved with it. And if our listeners are thinking, what the hell I am talking about? I'm talking about um, being a conscientious objector. I I tried so hard to forget that. Honey, I, I was going to say that. I want to start it like that. I was going to say... Honey, I know what we're going to talk about today might not have a very good, it doesn't, it might not bring a very good emotion onto you, but um, I think a lot of people want to know. And for me as well, I want to get some clarification on it. So who is better than you yourself who actually experienced it to uh, talk it to us? So can I start asking you some question about it? Are you open to it to share it with us? Oh yeah, that's fine. I mean, it's this is something that happened years and years ago, and it was a very unique set of circumstances, uh, something unlike anything that I'll ever encounter again. And what happened happened, and I, I don't mind talking about it because it might it might uh, be able to give someone a little bit of help mm-hmm. w- if they're if they find themselves in a similar situation. So uh, mistakes were made on on all ends. Uh, it was just a very, uh, it was just a very unusual set of circumstances, and it was a situation where um, no one really knew the right thing to do. Okay, so before I ask you some uh, technical questions, can you 
clarify what is a conscientious objector and specifically to an American? Well, a conscientious objector is someone who, I think the legal definition is someone who is opposed to war in all its forms. It doesn't mean that you're opposed to a particular war, say, specific to the United States. Like, say, there were a lot of people who were opposed to the American invasion of Iraq in 2003. But they weren't necessarily opposed to war in and of itself. They, 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 saw, they understood that war is necessary, but they opposed that particular invasion of Iraq. And it could be because it could have, be, could have been for any number of reasons why they would oppose that. That's not a conscientious objector. Mm. A conscientious objector is someone who is opposed to war, period. They see war as immoral. There's a number of reasons as to why someone would come to the conclusion that it's immoral. A lot of it is they have uh, uh, religious uh, training or religious beliefs that because they have these beliefs or they they hold to this particular doctrine of a certain religious sect that that they believe that war is, uh, they, they can't participate in it because of religious backgrounds. And I think the best known example of that <clears throat> on the American side of things is Desmond Doss, who was recently uh, profiled in a Mel Gibson movie. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It was four or five years ago that it came out. Uh, he participated in war, but in a non-combat role. He, was, he had very deep religious uh, uh, convictions, and because of these convictions, he would not take up a gun, but he served as a medic of some sort. He was awarded the Medal of Honor because of his actions in World War II. Uh, that's one type of conscientious objector is uh, who, who objects to participating in war or taking up arms in war because of religious objections, but they can participate in a non-combat role. And then you have another type of conscientious objector, which I think would uh, be better descriptive of myself and the situation that I found myself in around 2012 through about 2015, when I was finally discharged from the army. Uh, And that is just a very moral, a deep moral objection, personal objection to war. Um, And we can get into my own objections in a bit, but it's someone who views their own role, even if it's a non-combat role like I was. I was a musician, but they just, the whole idea, the whole concept of war is morally objectionable. And so uh, you, you conscientiously object to your participation in any way in the military. So there were a lot of conscientious objectors. This was a big, hot item in the World War I, World War II, uh, the Vietnam conflict. Because the draft was active in the United States, people were conscripted into the military service. And so they would try to get out of it by saying that they were conscientious objectors. And then there was this, <clears throat> there was this whole process of proving that you're a conscientious objector. And, and, and so because of that, there's a whole field manual or a whole uh, regulation on that the army and each branch of the service has on how to 
identify oneself as a conscientious objector, and if you're in the military, even as a volunteer military, you can be discharged as a conscientious objector. So it's completely legitimate, it's completely legal, moral to pursue that, and that's what I ended up pursuing uh, around the summer of 2014. Is it considered to be a human right? Well, I mean, that's dicey because the military, once you once you enlist in the military, you in a, effectively surrender a lot of your so-called human rights because they basic the, the government owns you. People don't realize that GI, like GI Joe, the GI stands for government issue. So, I mean, <laughs> you are... Uh, seriously, that's what it means. Mm. So when you are... Uh, conscripted, or I mean, if you enlist in the military, you give away a lot of your own so-called human rights, mm-hmm. like the right to your body. <clears throat> they can they can put whatever vaccine they want, like in into your body. So, so you you have very little moral grounds to oppose, like a, a COVID vaccine, for example, because they say, well, we own you. You gave your life to us. The idea is that they own you and they want to protect you. Yeah, that's one way of looking at it. Another way is that they just own you and <laughs> that's cut and dry. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy you yeah. talked about uh, different worlds, very famous worlds. Dif- <laughs> cut this out. I'm yeah, happy you yeah, talked sure, about uh, different wars like Vietnam wars, Iraq war and World War War, and you said there were people from that period of time uh, started to, you know, stand up for their right and say, hello, I am not into this, I don't want to go on, continue the war and killing innocents. So um, do you have any uh, person in mind or some of the very beginners who became conscientious objectors that contributed to this revelation of people standing for their own right? Well, it used to be that if you uh, identified yourself as a conscientious objector, even as recently as the World War One era, it was people were literally uh, executed because they refused to participate in war. Right. Or they would they would get drafted and they just wouldn't go. Do you recall and any famous popular name who was brave and said, "Wait, I'm not going to give in to this. Be a conscientious objector." I can't give you any specific names, but I know uh, from talking to people that that are much more educated on this than I am that it, World War One. I, I mean, people who were conscientious objectors they were severely, severely persecuted because of their beliefs. It, it was because of that that certain organizations, such as the Center on Conscience and War, which was very helpful to me in my application process in um, 2014 and 15, that that organization was founded because of the abuses and the mistreatment of people who identified as conscientious objectors. We, we have our issues here in America now, but they had issues back then. If you dissented from the status quo and what the government said was right, there were harsh, harsh consequences to pay. And people don't really understand the consequences that People that that held beliefs like I did a hundred years ago, it was severe. So, no, I can't give any names, but I can tell you that it was um, it was not smooth sailing if you if you chose to deviate from the standards and the status quo. What happens to a person when they are a conscientious objector? 
yeah, what what life look like when you already claim you are a conscientious objector? If if you're in the military, you mean? Yeah. Well, I can tell you that my life was uh, it was very unpleasant. Every single day, I would put on a uniform that bears the name of a institution that I had publicly declared was immoral. I mean, if you put in that application saying that I want to be discharged from the military as a conscientious objector, you are publicly saying what I am doing is wrong, is morally wrong. And you are basically putting your life or your future in the hands of uh, of people who are in the military. These these people process these applications. And so <laughs> you're telling your, like your commanding officer, for example, or your uh, your chain of command, what you're doing is wrong. And you're not saying that to them personally, but you're you're basically saying that. And it's, it's very difficult for people to understand or, or to uh, uh, separate that. People are prone to take things personally. That's just the way people are wired. When you're not saying that what they're doing is morally wrong, you respect their decision to enlist in the military, I just have concluded that what I'm doing is 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 not uh, kosher. It's not uh, it's not in keeping with my personal values and my personal convictions. But people have a difficult time with that, and I experienced a little bit of that. Uh, but to answer your question, life is not pleasant, <clears throat> and you basically have a couple of options. You can either wait out the the period of time that you have on your enlistment. And if you have less than two years, then that's probably the way to go because it's going to take at least a year for the paperwork to process. And then by that time, you're less than a year out and no one really gives uh, a hoot about you anyway. I found myself in a situation where I had uh, about five years, four or five years remaining on my contract. And uh, just the thought of staying in the military for another four years going like this was, I just couldn't, I couldn't fathom it. It was just uh, unconscionable for me to be able to do that for an additional four years. So that's the route I chose. And uh, there were some in interesting uh, stories that came about as a result of that. So may I ask, what are some of significant factors in your life that led you to make such a big big decision can you touch on few factors that led you to make that decision say this right. is my last decision i put my foot down and no turning back when someone finds themselves at a crossroads of sorts where they are really struggling with their own participation in the military it's often difficult to pinpoint what the real problem is and the analogy that I've used to describe my own predicament was when you go to the doctor and say that you've torn your ACL, for example, and your leg hurts, you don't know what's wrong. You just know that there's some severe pain in your knee. And you don't go to the doctor and say, doctor, 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 my anterior cruciate ligament is busted. You don't say that. You just go to the doctor's office and you say, my knee hurts. It's in severe pain, 
and I, I don't know what to do. I need some help to fix this. And so the doctor is going to run some tests. They'll do some x-rays or MRIs, whatever they do. And so the doctor will come back with a diagnosis and say, well, it looks like your ACL is torn. And so this is the treatment that we need to do. It's going to, you'd have to do a surgery to repair it, and then it's going to take however long, six to eight months to, to recover, and then you get, back, get you back to where you were before you hurt yourself. And so there are a lot of people who are struggling with uh, their conscience. They know something is wrong, but they can't put their finger on what the issue is. And a lot of these people are conscientious objectors, and they, can't, and they just can't put their finger on what the issue is. And that's kind of where I found myself around, I guess, around the beginning of 2013 is when I began to take steps to uh, be discharged from the military as a CO. And, and I didn't know exactly what was wrong. But then I heard, I think I just, I don't remember exactly what it was. This is a long time ago. But I just remembered maybe the term conscientious objector because this was a pretty, it was pretty common in the 70s and the 60s during the Vietnam War for people. And I just heard about it. I didn't know the first thing about it. But the more I investigated it and the more I <clears throat> understood what it really means to be a conscientious objector, the more I, I, I identified with it, and I realized this is the problem. It's not that I don't enjoy playing my instrument for a living and getting paid to do it. I, I'm, I enjoy that. I'm grateful for that. But being in the military and participating in something that I believe is morally wrong is, is problematic for me. It's like something was missing that you were looking for, you were searching for, and you couldn't find it there. It was, it was just uh, identifying what the issue was. And the issue was, I am a conscientious objector. And I probably, looking back, I probably was when I uh, enlisted in the military in 2008, initially. And I just didn't know how to put my finger on it and say, this is the problem. And if I had known in 08 what I knew in 2013, I w I'd never would have enlisted. But that's just, that's just the way it goes. So people ask, well, how can you get discharged as a conscientious objector when it's a volunteer military? I mean, you signed the dotted line, you signed a contract. So what right do you have to get out as, with this uh, classification? Well, people, people's uh, beliefs change. People's convictions the word that is used in the manual for the army is crystallize. Sometimes you, you have a set of beliefs or objections, and they just become crystallized over time. They become firm. They become more solid. I think that's not even the right question to ask anyone. I mean, we are living in a ever-changing world. Every day our life changes because of the dynamism that is in our environment. We all know we are open system. If we're not, we would have been a dead body walking on earth. We are a living thing. So that question, I mean, I mean, people ask you this question. I think they are unconsciously asking and they don't know. They're just doing it for the matter 
of I don't know self satisfaction because it the yeah. the question for me as a professor doesn't really have a meaning. I would never ask this mm. question from my student. Why did you fail? You were a good student. No, I will try to find out what happened, what changed in the environment or her his or her social life, or what uh, this kid had to face that caused this consequence. You know. So mm-hmm. you probably had your value changed. Maybe what you um, treasure most in your life changed. Maybe you did dynamic around you changed you start probably you educate yourself more maybe you became more literate there are so many factors that probably caused you to think a lot and your thoughts Mm -hmm. guided your choice to be as a conscientious objector Um, but we and me or anyone else we should not be in a position to judge you saying whether what you have done was right or wrong or question you well how can you do that if i point at you with my finger i have to also know that three finger is pointing back at me so Hmm. anybody wants to question you have to first answer to a lot of questions that in it is in their life that is unanswered that's one thing i want to say out of what you have just explained Mm -hmm. but what i want to just ask you is um, maybe this part might not be very pleasing, but I think everybody (laughs) wants to know because you've been such an important person for the army and you have contributed so much in your own way. And suddenly you found yourself helpless, friendless. Nobody look at you as they were looking at you like before. Your friends probably started judging you. Your family members start judging you. it looks like maybe beginning of the road was like the world just turned upside down for you. So would you be open to share how would life, how was life looking like for you after you made that decision and you were completely, totally detached yourself from that establishment? Well, it was difficult. I originally submitted the paperwork in, I think it was August of 2014. And uh, I did this in Yongsan Garrison in Seoul, Korea. And uh, (laughs) that base has, or had, I think they closed the base now, but they had a a reputation of being uh, not the most solid, the most efficient, the most, uh, they just lacked a lot of dedication. Even in the best of times, they they weren't the most trustworthy or the most solid organization. So I, w- I submitted my paperwork with these people and <clears throat> believe it or not, it got, quote, lost. Somebody just misplaced it or whatever happened. So I had to submit it again. I think it was about eight weeks later, maybe, maybe October of 14, something like that. But I had to submit it again. So I st- start basically start the whole process over. There was there was tension. It wasn't it wasn't spoken. It wasn't never got into it verbally with anybody. I, I did a little bit, and I'll get to that in a minute. But it, it nobody ever confronted me and said you're wrong. Actually, one person did that, and yeah, that's problematic in and of itself. But uh, overall, it I I would describe it as cordial between myself and my colleagues in in the band there at Korea. 
they didn't really understand it. Most people weren't even aware of it. But the people who were aware of it, they were cordial, I would call it. They, just, they tolerated it, right? As time went on, I would just encounter delay after delay after delay. And the field manual, you know, it prescribes a certain, it has certain benchmarks for certain parts of the process to be met. Like you meet with the chaplain to, for the, and the chaplain will interview you and determine if, if he thinks that you're being sincere with it or if you're just kind of putting on a show or maybe you just have something that you need to talk through and get to the other side of it. And, and then the chaplain will recommend whether or not it should go to the next process, which is, uh, I guess it's kind of like an interrogation. Uh, I had a military police officer who was assigned to it, and he basically, it was like, it was like a hearing. It was like I was on trial, and the burden of proof was on me to prove my sincerity as my as a conscientious objector. And I'll get to the outcome of that in just a minute. But the the whole process was delay after delay after delay. It's like you're supposed to meet with a chaplain within, I don't know, three or four weeks, something like that. And then this interview is supposed to take place within three months. And then it gets sent to the Pentagon where they, they have a board of people who review these applications. And there are, there are many that are sent in. People don't know that. And then they give the yay or nay. So the whole process, even when it's gone by the book, it takes a good six to eight months. Well, I found myself in a position where eight months after I had submitted the paperwork, the interview wasn't even scheduled yet. And this whole time, I'm still going to work, putting on the uniform every single day, and just hating myself for it. Just really, really uh, not, I just was not loving life. Uh, And I found myself reacting to otherwise really tepid situations with really, really unpleasant reactions to things. And it was just because I was really stressed out over this. And something would happen, there was like a little miscommunication or something, and I would just explode. I would just blow up at people. And this continued. And I found myself in hot water with the the UCMJ, which is the Uniform Code of Military Justice. I, I, I guess I was able to avert being in trouble or getting... Uh, have punitive action handed down to me because of my attitude and my actions, which, quite frankly, were merited. They were warranted. I I guess people just said, well, he's going through this and he's going through a hard time and we'll we'll let it slide. I don't know if that was the right decision, but that's neither here nor, nor there. It doesn't really matter at this point. The important thing is that I was not myself. I was... I had I was turning into somebody that was not the the lovable, the gentle, the kind, compassionate James that we know today. <laughs> I was very I was I was really What are you laughing at? <laughs> You're still not Feel free to agree, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Anyway, well my my wife takes issue with what I just said, but that's okay. No, I totally agree. You are a very calm, quiet, gentle person. Um, I'll be the one who... And you'll be like, okay, honey, whatever you say. 
Yes, and we had so I had this going on, and then at on the home front, uh, the person I was married to at the time was uh, not supportive of my decision. Uh, in fact, I didn't even tell her that I had done this until a, a, about thirty days after I had done it, because I knew she was gonna her reaction was gonna be explosive and over the top. I I just knew it, and as predicted, she did not take kindly to. Uh, the news that her husband was getting out of the military because of being a conscientious objector, and she gave me no small amount of grief over this. I mean, literally uh, accused me, like, (laughs) would literally say, oh, that's right, you're the person who doesn't provide for his family in regards, in reference to me leaving the military. This is while I'm still in the military and still getting a paycheck and still basically, you know, providing for the family. And this is what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with this conflict at work and then conflict at home from the person that you would expect to have have your back in a situation like this. She had my back, only she had a knife in it and was twisting it because she was acting out of fear. That's again, this is just what I'm dealing with. And I'm not I'm not saying this to uh criticize anyone. That's not why I'm saying it. I'm saying it because to give a complete picture of what was going on in my life at the time. And so I just found myself acting out in, you know, really benign situations. I would just explode. And it got to the point where I, uh, I, I was given an Article 15, which if you're not familiar with the military system of discipline is basically, I guess it's kind of like a glorified slap on the hand. You, you get a little bit of extra duty. I, I, it's just, it's really nothing. It doesn't leave the base once you leave. It, it's really nothing. But I was given that, and it's, kind of, it's, it's just a little humiliating. That's really all it is. And one thing led to another. I had another situation where I blew up at a really, in, in hindsight, really benign situation. And this turned into my... Uh, discipline for this particular action was I was sent to this military exercise that was taking place on the DMZ, uh, the, uh, the demilitarized zone, which is about two miles away from the border of North Korea, a country that is still technically at war with the United States. Now, I'm not one to judge, and I'm not saying this because I want to criticize anyone. I'm just saying what happened. This uh, being ordered to participate in a military exercise, even though it was just a training exercise. It wasn't just a training exercise. It was occurring two miles away from this, uh, from the border of North Korea, which is overtly hostile to the United States, not to mention um, South Korea. And here I am being ordered to go to this exercise in this particular situation. Now, it didn't sit well with me. At this point, every man has his breaking point, Sana. Every single man. And a man can tolerate a lot of stuff, but every single man has his breaking point. And this was my breaking point. I was literally thinking of ways that I could escape. Just pack up my bags and get out of there. I couldn't do it because it was very isolated. Uh, It was like, I'm in Korea. I can't, I can't leave this compound and then hitchhike my way back to 
soul. I couldn't do that. Like, it just wasn't an option. I thought of ways that I could curse out a sergeant major and just get myself in all kinds of hot water and they'd, there'd be no choice but to kick me out. I was li- literally thinking of things that I could do to get out of this. And what I eventually did was I survived the, uh, the exercise. It was fine. It was uneventful in, on its own merits. Uh, when I returned to, when I got home, uh, I basically went, uh, I just took a trip to visit a friend of mine who lives uh, outside of Korea. And I didn't bother to get permission to do so. And so this is kind of a big deal. This was, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. I was uh, given a uh, field grade Article 15. I was demoted in rank. And basically what happened was because of the amount of time that I had been in the military, the rank that I was demoted to did not allow me to stay in the military. So they were, it was, I think they call it uh, RCP, someone told me recently, retention control point. And so because of that, I was, uh, I was uh, more or less fired from the army because of, because of being demoted. I, I had been in, on paper, I had been in the military too long. So they, that's how I got out. I, it, my application was never, I don't know if it was ever reviewed by the board in Washington, D.C. I don't know. I felt very good about it being um, approved. But then I had heard stories from friends of mine who I consorted with, and they felt good about it too, and then they were rejected because of some technicality or some, like, they, they didn't show sincere, adequate sincerity, and so they rejected it. And people like, people like that, they are made an example because the military doesn't like uh, its own saying that what they're doing is wrong. They've got enough of that on the civilian front. They don't need to have their own troops saying what they're doing is wrong. So they will do whatever they can to keep uh, that type of dissension to an absolute minimum. And so they'll make examples of people who do that. I mean, even the strongest cases that I heard got rejected on really flimsy grounds. So that's just what I was dealing with. And that was the the world that I found myself in. And I'm not saying that it was right. I'm not saying it was wrong. I'm not saying I'm proud of it. I'm not saying I'm ashamed of it. It's just it's just what I did to deal with that particular situation. It's I, I have a very amoral approach to the decisions that I made. It was it's just what I did. It's what I had to do to survive in that moment. So uh, I know that some people took issue with what I did. They viewed it as abandonment of some sort, like I stranded my comrades or some 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 all kinds of nonsense that I heard about this, but it's just what I did. It was really, like I said earlier, it's a really stressful, very unique set of circumstances that I don't think I'll ever encounter again. So I can't say what I would do differently if I were to do it again, because I'll most likely never have to deal with something like that again. It was very, very unique circumstances. So, I mean, that's just long-winded answer to your question, but that's what it is. Well, honey, I think now you're free to do anything you like, <laughs> anywhere you want to go. And yeah, now I'm free to be in Prasanna's prison. <laughs> 
No, I'm trying to say something else. And again, you have taught me some more new lessons to be brave, to um, be consistent and persistent into the goals I have in my life, the dreams I have in my life. And the sky is the limit. It's, it's not like that um, being in the military is the only way to survive. There are so much abundant resources in the world. There's so much to do in the world. Um, and I think, like you said, people change, mentality change, personality changes. And um, um, as a result, we have to also... Uh, find new ways of entertaining ourselves to survive in this world or even find new ways to provide for our families, for ourselves and so much more. My last question, when you were making this decision, did you actually consider the consequences of it? Well, I mean, you, you make a decision like that and you take that action and oftentimes you have like the first step of the staircase illuminated. And so... When I did what I did, it was, it was very much a, a, a place of desperation, and you really don't know exactly what's going to happen, but you just know I have to do this. I can't. Or go you just don't care day. what consequence gonna be. You just fed up. You want to get out of it as soon as possible. Yeah, it's it's kind of that's that's part of it, and you just you don't know exactly what's going to happen, or how it's going to play out. You just know that. This has to happen, and I can't go another day right. without without this uh, without me taking this action. So, this is just like my Vietnamese uh, yeah, I, friend here when we were talking about all these lockdowns, and was like, "My God, if these cases still continue, they're gonna put us in another lockdown." And she was like, "No, no way, this not gonna happen." It's just like I am gonna. She said, "It's just like they come to me and they say you don't have to come to work, work from home.'" And I told them. It's my life. You want to protect me, I know, but I, you have to let me take my own risk. You know, if I'm gonna get it and die, I will sign a paper and I say it's at my own risk. That's what I wanted. Yeah, I can't. I can't say that I would do anything differently here in 2021 because I'm in a completely different state of mind, a completely different life than I was back then. I'm a civilian now have been for years, and it looks like I'm going to somehow survive outside of the protection of the military and the free health care and metal, metal, dental care or whatnot. So it looks like I'm going to make it. But uh, I have to say that at that time, if I were to know what exactly was going to come, if I was, going, if I was to be told play by play what is going to happen in the next year, year plus, 15 months, whatever, I would have said, sign me up. I'll do it. I'll do whatever it takes. I mean, that was my mission in life, to get out of the military. Mm -hmm. It was just like, this is what I have to do. So, yeah, I would have said, sure, I can deal with that. Sign me up. Let's do it. Hmm. And, and I would like to say that a book that I uh, came across, this is after, this is probably four to six months after I actually filled out the application, I found this book in the military clothing store. <laughs> they have a book section at the clothing store. And one of the books that they were selling is called On Killing. And this it's written by, a, I think he's retired U.S. Army Ranger. He was a, a lieutenant colonel, I think, in the Army. And he was a Ranger, so he's just way up 
the ranks as far as uh, I don't know. I don't know if he'll ever would have become like a four star general or anything. But as far as the Rangers are concerned, he was way, way, way up the ranks. And he didn't write this book with the perspective of, of a conscientious objector, but he wrote it very transparently and very just very openly and blatant about the cause uh, about about why the military culture is the way that it is. And to sum up, the military culture is the way it is because it is designed to enable human beings to overcome the natural aversion to killing other people. Every single person has a natural aversion to killing others. And the whole the book was explaining how the mili- the culture of the military, every single detail of the military culture is designed <clears throat> to uh, enable the person to overcome that natural aversion to killing a stranger w- otherwise with whom you have no conflict at all when you're ordered to do so. Everything, the basic training, the formations in the morning, the way you do your physical training in cadence and everything, everything about the military culture is designed to deprogram that natural aversion to killing. And that that book put me over the top. I mean, if there was any reservations that I had after I uh, put in that application, that book sealed the deal. And it just made me realize, I get it. I understand it. I knew that there was a problem and I knew action had to be taken. But this makes it brought everything into clarity. I get it. Everything. This is why I can't stand these formations in the morning. This is why uh, this and that about the military culture just gets under my skin like a chigger and just won't leave. It's because I'm a conscientious objector, and the whole culture is completely antithetical to my personality, my convictions, my beliefs. It's just completely untenable, and it sealed the deal that what I was doing was the right thing to do for me personally. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts and something that is that really has significant importance to you and in your life and shaped you for who you are right now. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm sure me and our listeners got some mm-hmm. valuable, you know, uh, take from it. Well, I mean, what's done is done. You can't go back and relive the past. Um, but I can't say that I would do anything differently, honestly. So, Honey, yeah. you should take that part that I talked about you and bring it to this here. End it. Okay. All right, sounds good, baby. You still have to give the website. www.what? Jamesandsana.com. Okay. Well, if you'd like to hear more about James and I and some serious stuff, some fun stuff, some shallow, mellow <laughs> type of stuff, <laughs> you can go to our website at www.jamesandsana.com. Very good. You got it right the first time. I'm so proud of you, honey. 